Welcome to Mental Health in Minutes, where we open the door to conversations about workplace mental health and help leaders and HR professionals create safe and innovative organizations where our employees and our companies thrive. I am your host, Lindsay Recknell, a psychological health and safety advisor, a workplace mental health consultant, speaker, a facilitator, and an expert in hope. Each episode of this show has three objectives. To discuss the future of mental health in the workplace, to identify the best, most successful strategies for opening the door to mental health conversations at work, and to share the top ways we can engage our leadership in the workplace mental health conversation and have them endorse and pay for a positive culture shift within our organizations. If you're listening to this podcast or watching us on the YouTube channel, you know that our people need us more than ever, but most of our organizations have a long way to go until supporting employee wellness is embedded in the culture of our workplace. This episode is a resource you can use to start and continue mental health conversations, and my guests will share their experiences and what's worked for them. Excited to get going, so let's dig in. Today's guest is Adam Nebs, a PhD student studying workplace mental health at the Menzies Institute for Medical Research in Tasmania. He has lived experience of anxiety and spends his life learning how to be his best self. And he uses these lessons to teach others, especially on his podcast called Settling's Not an Option. Adam also has a five-year-old daughter who he considers one of his mentors. She teaches him some big lessons about life and fatherhood. So grateful to have you on the show, Adam, to share with us why mental health needs to be taken seriously and why you decided to leave the corporate world to pursue a new path. Welcome. Thank you for inviting me. I really appreciate it. It's so cool. Like we were just saying just before the show started about how we met um, and how cool it is that we can have conversations literally around the world um, about these kind of important topics. And it's kind of neat how we get to be connected in that way. Yeah, definitely. And, and I think um, I've, I've spoken to a few people on LinkedIn who wanted to change, I suppose, um, change their path uh, from a career perspective. And I've said, just reach out to people, just connect with someone on LinkedIn, drop them a line. And I'd say eight out of 10 times, someone will reply and, and you'll create a relationship. So, um, and that's literally how I actually changed from the corporate world of finance into the mental health space was just literally sending a message to the right person who's my now primary supervisor. And we're like, yeah, basically I, I talk to her every week now and uh, she's an amazing person who's very supportive. So there you go. Amazing. How's that for a mm, professional online dating relationship? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. A bit, a bit of a plug for LinkedIn, but I'm just a huge fan and um, yeah, I just think it's a great resource for you know, in this day and age, you know, connecting with people from all walks of life, different countries. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, I'm very happy to connected with, to be connected with you. The Some of the conversations that we've had have been, um, you've had a really cool perspective, of course, being uh, in Tasmania. Now, just excuse my ignorance. Tell me where in relation to Australia that is. <laughs> so you've got the, the big mainland and then you've got like the little island down the bottom. So yeah, we... Uh, yeah, there's just two islands and then a couple of like little mini kind of islands dispersed around Australia, but we're right at the bottom. Okay, excellent. So for the Canadians in our audience, it would be like Vancouver Island off the west coast of Canada. And maybe in the US, it would be like a closer Hawaii, <laughs> perhaps, <Yeah. laughs> sort of, and kind of yeah. in that. Um, so I know you're doing your PhD in workplace mental health. Now, tell me. 
tell me the career path that got you there, but then also um, how a person, what are you studying specifically to do your PhD in workplace mental health? Yeah, sure. So I previously worked in the the corporate world, uh, as I said, corporate world of finance for the past 10 years, primarily as a frontline manager, branch manager. And uh, during that time, because that wasn't my ultimate goal from a career point of view, I kind of fell into it like a lot of us do. And it really taught me a lot of lessons about uh, what a workplace should look like, a healthy workplace should look like. And, And the most previous work experience I had as a branch manager uh, exposed me to things like a complete lack of resources, high demands, uh, bullying, um, pretty much all the things, I suppose, that all the big names in in workplace mental health research talk about. Uh, This workplace pretty much did the exact opposite of what you're meant to do. Um, So I actually left, left there of my own volition. I didn't actually have another job to go to. Uh, so it was quite scary uh, because of the fact that I decided to do that. And then two weeks later, COVID-19 hit uh, and we started having lockdowns and the job market in Tasmania and the rest of the country dried up. So that was scary. Um, but I I haven't looked back since. It felt like I made a courageous decision uh, to, to jump out of a really toxic environment, to live with purpose, to try and guide others to... Uh, to not settle for, I suppose, a, a workplace environment that's toxic just because of money or prestige or whatever. Uh, and I think the, the universe kind of conspired around me to, to put me where I am today. But what I'm specifically studying, uh, because <laughs> when I started this, this path, I suppose, I didn't realise how incredibly enormous and complex mental health in, in a work context is. Um, so really, my small piece of the pie would be I'm looking at how workplaces can measure uh, their environments and understand, you know, what things do they have in place? What is their current state of play to understand, you know, what, what are they doing? What are their policies? What are their processes and procedures to, you know, understand how they're going from a mental health perspective? So it's kind of tricky. Um there's a lot of tools out there. My first paper is, is doing what, what's called a scoping review, where I'm just literally scoping out all the literature, uh, websites, uh, you know, experts to kind of say what tools are available if I'm just a HR rep or, uh, you know, somebody who's a key informant in the wellness space in a work environment. What can they use to kind of look at their state of play and say, do we have an EAP provider um, do we have clear policies around how, how to respond to bullying, how to return people to work after, you know, they've had a, a mental illness? So, yeah, what tools are available there? Because it seems like there's quite a, a lack of tools at that organisational level and it's really critical that we find those and deploy those upon organisations and businesses. Amazing. I didn't know that you could just research the assessment tools because, I mean, So we know how important assessing an organization is because no organization, there's not a one size fits all kind of program, right? We need to meet organizations where they're at. Um, But I didn't know that that could be a whole field of study. Amazing. I love that. So have you found any cool ones yet? Is there any particular tools that you could share with us that maybe people get access? 
Well, it's it's a good question. I'm kind of I've gone through uh, a bunch of scientific databases, and I'm now moving on to websites and things like that. So there's still a, a fair body of work to be done. Um, but there's some tools that are really widely used, uh, really widely psychometrically tested. So that's you know confirming their reliability and validity. Things like the job content questionnaire or the Copenhagen, uh, Copenhagen, sorry, uh, psychosocial risk tool. Uh, so these are tools that have been around for many years, I think since the 60s and 70s, um, and, and go through a number of iterations. And they're very good, I suppose, at providing a, a really good uh, understanding of what the landscape looks like. But a lot of these are aimed, uh, not that there's anything wrong with that, a lot of these are aimed at employees. Um, you know, at, at getting their subjective responses to, do you think this environment is suitable, you know, and and how do you feel about psychosocial risk in the workplace? So those are some of the tools we've found. Um, there's a lot of other tools that measure all sorts of things like burnout or it could be uh, negative acts, I guess, uh, which is just another fancy way, I suppose, of saying bullying. Um, but Canada, uh, what a wonderful, amazing country, for so many reasons. I mean, of course, you've had the national standard for such a long time. Uh, guarding minds at work, I think, is just an absolutely beautiful tool. And I think some of the audit tools that have come out of Canada are just fantastic. Um, those are ones that are very in, in line, I suppose, or, or some of the closest tools to what I'm specifically looking for. But um, in speaking to Marianne Baton a while ago, just another example of a fantastic Canadian who is just willing to give me time not knowing me from a bar of soap. And I asked her quite early on in my project, um, you know, what's the best workplace out there? Like, what's the best workplace you found? And, you know, can, can you give me some advice from that workplace? And she made uh, a comment which sticks with me today, which is, there is none. You know, there could be a, a workplace right now that's absolutely hitting all the things they need to, but because of labour market conditions, because of pandemics, um, things change. And it's those work organisations that can adapt and move, you know, in, in line with all these changes. They're the ones that are going to be sustainable and continue to change. So there's no one organisation that would consistently always be great. I'm sure there are out there in the world, but... Uh, it's ones that are adaptable and, and willing to change in the face of uh, unprecedented times. Whoa. Like, how insightful is that? Yeah, she's a, an amazing person. She really is. So I know I know of her a little bit as well because, like you say, Canada is full of excellent resources. And um, uh, I'm a psychological health and safety advisor trained to implement the Canadian standard of psychological safety. And she was a huge part of my training in that, um, in the standard, she's got a, a strong, strong, strong connection to the Canadian Mental Health Association. And it was her, it was her consulting organization and her resources that we used as part of our case study, which was the whole, like the entire two-day training was the big case study. So yeah, it's very cool that you reference her because she's a smart, smart cookie. Oh, yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, I hope to have her on the show. In fact, she and I are having conversations. So I'm very excited about that. Excellent. That's yeah. Great. Um, and you also mentioned guarding minds at work because, which is 
For those of you out there, it's a totally free tool. You can use it to implement, um, to do an assessment in your organization, or you can hire psychological health and safety advisors like me to, to help you uh, assess and then also implement the recommendations based on the Guarding Minds at Work survey. But it's, you're, I couldn't agree with you more. It is a incredible, incredibly simple, um, like effective, super effective tool that organizations really get to the heart of what's going on for them. Mm. Do you, does Australia or Tasmania use um, anything like the 13 psychosocial factors that we talk about it within the standard? Well, we we don't actually have our own standard, I suppose. Um, we are very much trying to work towards that, but I suppose from a, a legislative perspective, we're really struggling to kind of define things. And so it's quite funny reading the history of the standard and how it formed. Um, it, it feels almost similar to Australia in that we're, you know, we've got a whole bunch of different states and territories, a whole bunch of different parties that all want to have their perspective, um, you know, so it makes it really hard from a legislative point of view to regulate these things. Um, Plus, you know, controversially, I, I guess, but um, I'm sure a lot of Australians would agree with me, we don't have a unified political perspective on this. You know, we we have uh, almost, I suppose, different kind of factions, I suppose. You've got, you know, the Liberals and Labor parties and they'll have their own kind of things that they want to put in place uh, and quite often, you know, this gets left off the table or we can't agree on it. But... One of the, the things down here, uh, and I've spoken to a few people from Canada working in the workplace mental health space that definitely know of her work, um, Professor Maureen Dollard, she's worked very heavily on creating a psychosocial risk climate tool. So what that essentially does is kind of measures um, those kind of base risks in a workplace and allows workplaces to score themselves, you know, and if they have a certain score, they're less likely, um, you know, to have risks that will impact people from a mental health perspective. Mm -hmm. So that's probably one of the most uh, widely used tools, I think, here in Australia um, and a really important tool. But what my work specifically aiming to look at is uh, psychosocial risk is incredibly important, but at the same token, you've got to consider other things like uh, how to manage those that are already mentally unwell how do you manage people that, you know, are moving towards being mentally unhealthy? Because, again, throughout our lives, our mental health is not just illness or health. It, it, it moves along a very, you know, long, lengthy spectrum and constantly moves back and, th and forth throughout our lives. So how do you manage those that are mentally unwell uh, in the workplace? But also how do you look at, you know, the positive benefits of work? Work can be really good for um, so many reasons, not just financially, but, and, you know, the career progression, but also creating identities, giving people purpose, um, you know, creating happiness. And I think that's what I like about the Guarding Minds uh, tool uh, and the audit tools uh, out of obviously the Mental Health Commission over in Canada is they look at things other than just psychosocial risk. They look at, you know, all domains that could really impact mental health. So, um, yeah, that's why I love that tool so much. You are very educated on Canadian tools, my friend. It's awesome. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> um, so it's really interesting what you mentioned there about some of your research is about um, helping leaders to manage 
teams or employees who are already not mentally well, or they can see them sliding into burnout or into a mentally unhealthy place. Are you far enough in your research yet to give us some ideas on how a leader could do that? Well, um, I'm probably not far enough along because I suppose I haven't, you know, kind of got to the point where I get to go into workplaces and deploy tools and get to talk to key informants like leaders or HR reps. But Look, drawing on my experience as a leader, drawing on my knowledge, I suppose, of any kind of research literature on it um, is, I mean, leaders are absolutely fundamental, um, you know, and it it goes without saying. But a leader can really create an environment that makes people feel comfortable to, to bring up the fact that they have a mental illness. So in my previous place of work that I mentioned, I did not feel comfortable to say to my manager, I don't want to go on the counter because I have anxiety and I don't know exactly what I'm doing. I'm the branch manager here and it's actually quite embarrassing and stressful for me to get on the counter when I don't know what I'm doing, especially when I'm wearing a badge of leadership. You know, it it just doesn't work. So the whole time I'm having to have these discussions with my leader to try and Uh, edge around the fact that my main issue is anxiety but I didn't feel comfortable to to speak up so again it it ties into things like stigma uh, and leaders need to just create an environment where people feel comfortable to say you know these are the reasons I don't feel comfortable with that and the workplace or at least a good one needs to accommodate to those things Mm -hmm. um, because you know, this is just as important as, as physical risks, which I think we've maintained very well. No one would question in the workplace the importance of uh, avoiding trip hazards and things. It's just commonplace. But when it comes to trip hazards for your mind and stressing you out, we kind of question those and how important they are. So I think as a leader, that's your your first thing. Also, something I heard recently um, is I'm very interested in organizational politics, you know, so the perception of self-serving interests and these little kind of pockets of people that form an organizations and almost make people feel uncomfortable to to speak up uh, about particularly things that are not going well in an organization and I heard uh, something from Simon Sinek uh, and I know a lot of people would have heard his amazing talks on leadership and he specifically said in organizations you know where people feel safe in organizations where people Um, you know, that are mentally healthy, Uh, there's no politics because there's no need for self-serving parties because of the fact that the organisation's all working together and people don't feel the need to break off and figure out how they can do it for themselves. They're doing it for the organisation. So that's one thing I think leaders need to be mindful of. Okay, well, if there's little pockets like that forming, why? You know, are they forming because they don't feel comfortable and they feel like they need to uh, safeguard themselves and if that's the case all right well how can you as a leader and it's a lot easier said than done um, you know how can you kind of break apart those things I suppose and it is easier said than done but I think the first step is that assessment is the realization of what's going on because if you don't know if you don't know what the root cause of it is you don't know how to solve it right so yeah you're you're right those those I mean the conversations are very important. Um, how do you open the door to those conversations? So if you if you work there and you have to keep working there at least today, um, you know how how do you open the door to those difficult conversations? 
It's tricky. I think from a leadership perspective, you need to be vulnerable and you need to be willing to, I, I suppose, you know, because if people see you role modeling the fact that you make mistakes, uh, that maybe you're stressed because the environment's not great, um, or even if you feel comfortable enough to say, I'm not at my best self today because some things that have happened outside of work have impacted my mental health, you know, I'm not feeling at my best, then others think, well, my leader's prepared to, to kind of have those conversations, those vulnerable, honest, raw conversations, and people just mirror it, you know. I, I think I've seen that happen many times before, and that was something I tried to demonstrate as a leader uh, was I will just admit when I'm not at my best and my people rallied around me. Uh, and I think, you know, if people aren't rallying around you, maybe there's some some bigger things in play, you know, maybe the environment's really uh, needs a lot of work and maybe that's further up the chain, you know, that those cultural issues need to be addressed. But I think it's being brave. Um, and I know it's scary because a lot of people think, especially in the environment we're in today, you know, an environment where job insecurity is pervasive, people feel terrified to speak up for fear of what if I lose my job? Um, you know, and that's, that's such a, a big thing. Um, but we just need to be brave enough to to try and make change and just have those conversations because others will follow. Amazing. Model that behavior out loud. Yeah. Totally. Couldn't, could not agree more. That's a bit, yeah, that's brilliant because you're right. If we as leaders are brave, even if, even if we're leaders without title, right? Even if we're just natural leaders who have colleagues that follow us, if we can model that brave, courageous behavior and um, walk the talk, so to speak. I think that even that goes a t- goes a really long way. I think that's a really good point too. You don't just have to have a title um, because I think as a leader on the other side, there's this perception that you're invincible and that you're not impacted by anything. You know, you've just got to get with it. You've decided to become a leader, so you just have to cop all the stress. But on the other side, you know, you may be struggling, but just very good at masking your struggles but they will come out um, and they came out for me, certainly, but I was just lucky enough to have people that rallied around me and supported me on the ground. Um, So yeah, step up, be a leader and be brave enough to say to your leader, are you okay? You know, is there anything I can do for you? Uh, You just don't seem yourself. And most of the time, I think, you know, your leader will turn around and say, yeah, look, I'm struggling actually. It's not been easy this week. There's a lot of pressure on me. And that's something a lot of middle managers would feel. You've got the stress from your direct reports and the stress from above. You know, it's very exhausting. (laughs) I think that is something that we don't talk about often enough, how hard it is to be a leader, especially a middle management leader, because we expect so much of leaders but we don't also talk about them as employees themselves, them as the people that are struggling, right? We expect our leaders to stand up and model behavior out loud and put on your brave face and be authentic and all of those things. But when they are struggling, then it becomes extra impossible because you not only have to show up for your, for your people, but you also have to show up for yourself. Um, 
And uh, yeah, I don't think we, I, I don't, I don't think we talk about that nearly often enough. And then you throw all the outside personal pressures on top of that because many leaders are also parents or they're care, caring for their parents and their, their kids. And, um, you know, the, the higher up the, the career ladder you go, the more stressful it is, but the older you get in your family dynamic, the more stressful it gets as well. So, um, yeah, I think it's really important that point that you called out. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's great to hear you say it as well, because I think it is a, uh, a topic that's not talked about enough because I can say, um, yeah, there is a lot of expectation put on middle managers. Uh, and, you know, I think if you want middle managers to really be at their best, you just need to also make sure that they are supported really well because they are just a, you know, I, I put something on LinkedIn a while ago which was just talking about, you know, quite often you see the senior leaders in the C-suite, you know, really role modelling what a mentally healthy workplace looks like. But at the end of the day, it's like a chain, you know. If if that middle manager doesn't prioritise it or maybe their mental health is really off um, and they don't pick up on those things, that chain can break. So all that work you're doing at the top doesn't filter down to the bottom. And, you know, so it's really important to just look at middle managers as their own, you know, just entity and how can we also support and maintain those important, uh, I suppose, mentally healthy practices in them as well. Yeah, that's a that's a great strategy. So for organizations that are struggling with, yeah, breaking that chain or a real disconnect between the perceived mental, um, mental well balance, I guess, of the C-suite and perhaps the encouraging increasing mental health of the employees sort of on the front line if there's a gap in that middle management space maybe that is a strategy to focus specifically on those guys and and help them to grow and and continue to increase their their well-being yeah that's great um you mentioned earlier as well how mental illness and mental health are not um they're not the same thing right? We, you can be, you can be, you can have a diagnosable mental illness and still feel mentally well, mm, right? You can right. still feel, you can still have mental, high mental well-being or positive mental well-being. And you can have not be diagnosed with a mental illness, but still not feel mentally well. And I think that connection doesn't get often, doesn't get made often enough as well. Um, do, do you see that? Is that a trend or, or something that you experience as well? Absolutely. And I think it's good because more and more I'm seeing a lot of uh, people talk about this, a lot of LinkedIn videos. I saw one just yesterday uh, where uh, one of my connections, he was he was beautifully explaining uh, the difference. But I just think a good way to kind of look at it is, um, well, I suppose there's two different ways. Like, the again, it, it um, you know, I, I promise I'm not pandering uh, to, to the Canadian audience. I just love Canada. <laughs> And you guys just get it right. But again, you know, just the continuum, the model that kind of, you know, has different shades of colours, you know, that's just such an easy way to demonstrate, you know, at one point you can be sitting at that really high well-being and absence of illness, but then at the same time you can start moving, uh, you know, to that kind of red zone where you are, you know, your well-being is very low and you have mental illness. And this is something that uh, quite an influential academic by the name of Corey Key spoke about. He called it a a complete state of mental health. And he said the number of people with a complete state of mental health is very low. 
And that is where you have a complete absence of mental illness, but you have high levels of subjective well-being. You know, that's where we all want to be. But at the same token, as you said, you know, you can have, you know, a common mental disorder, um, you know, so anxiety or depression, and I'm not downplaying those. That's just something in the literature that's mentioned, CMDs. Um, you know, you can have that, but high levels of subjective well-being and, and therefore be functioning. So that's the importance of the workplace, again, is just because somebody's coming in and they're experiencing a mental illness doesn't mean that you can't take steps to increase their well-being and, and help them function because that has been shown to start moving people, you know, closer to that complete state of mental health that we're talking about. So it's just very important, you know, uh, to try and break those conversations where we say, oh, mental health and see it as synonymous with mental illness because it's so much more complex than that. Mm. But I, I think, and sorry to, to um, badger on this point, but what I think it also is very important is if we see mental health as mental illness, it means that when you're talking to a stakeholder in a business and saying, hey, we want to you know, improve the mental health of your workplace, they straight away say, oh, it's just a small minority of people with depression and anxiety or schizophrenia or whatever it may be. You know, we're only we're only looking after that small majority. Ah, oh, no, that doesn't, you know, that's not good for money. You know, that's not good for productivity and cost. But if we think of mental health as this huge thing that everyone has and that at some stage in your life you may, uh, you know, be unfortunate enough to be impacted by mental illness or know a friend or family member who's been impacted, it becomes something that impacts everyone and thus creating a mentally healthy workplace is good for everyone and good for your business. It will make uh, more money for you in the, in the long run if that's the way that you want to see it and that's what's important to you. So true. So true. I love that. Um, and I love that you mentioned the mental health continuum put out by the Mental Health Commission of Canada. Uh, I will link to that in the show notes for anybody else who's interested in that. I have it printed on my desk as well because <laughs> it's it's a tool that I use quite a bit. Um, you know, and it, it kind of goes along with, and I'm going to reference another Canadian artifact here, but um, have you heard of the CMHA's program, Not Myself Today? No, I haven't, no. So it's a workplace mental health program, which helps... It helps make um, conversations easier for for employees. There's um, activities and, and conversation starters and uh, presentations and things like that. And they've got these buttons as well that just says, I'm not myself today. And so, you know, it's a kind of an easy way into a conversation. So if you've got your button or if you've got that on your wall or something, it gives other people around you um, a conversation starter, which is, which is kind of nice. And so I feel like the mental health continuum, uh, is something similar, right? If you're, you can kind of point to where you are on that spectrum or on that continuum, um, just to open the door. Cause sometimes it is, we don't, you know, we know we're supposed to talk out loud, but often don't know how to, how, what to say, you know, it's, it's hard to say, I feel sad today, you know? Um, but these kind of tools can be, can be good conversation starters. Yes. Thanks for mentioning that. I just jotted it down because I hadn't heard of it before. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, good. See, we can trade resources too. Exactly. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, Adam, I am sad to say that our time has uh, come to a close here. That This conversation has just been awesome. I have learned a ton. You are 
clearly in the right uh, in the right field of research. You are um, well spoken and articulate, and uh, you're welcome to be an honorary Canadian anytime. Oh, thank you. Anytime. It's an honor. Thank you. <laughs> um, Thank you, everyone, uh, for listening and watching another episode of Mental Health in Minutes. It's been my pleasure to introduce you to Adam and his perspective on workplace mental health. He shared his personal experience in the workplace and why having a safe and secure workplace to come to work every day matters in a big way. We know that all workplaces are different, and Adam shared with us some strategies for assessment within your own workplace to ensure that you can meet your people where they're at and help them where they need it the most. We believe in the power of our employees and know you do too, or you wouldn't be watching and listening to this. If you loved this episode, please consider subs- consider subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcast player or on our YouTube channel. You can find this everywhere at Mental Health in Minutes, as well as on the web at mentalhealthinminutes.com. You can start supporting the mental health of your organization in minutes by joining my digital subscription. Monthly, done-for-you presentations designed to engage, inspire, and increase mental wellness in your workplace. It's my pleasure to get to work with people like you, people leaders who care so much about your employees and want to give the best of yourself to support those around you. I also know how crazy busy it can be as a people leader and how competing priorities always seem to get in the way of actually being able to provide the good stuff, the real value-added stuff. For your people. Let me help you by doing the heavy lifting and you can get back to doing what you do best, engaging with and supporting your people. Let's connect and talk about the best ways I can help. As always, I'm here if you need me. Thanks again, Adam. It is such a pleasure to get to know you and look forward to continuing the conversation. Thanks, Lindsay. Take care. <laughs>